Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. LMFM Podcasts with CNC Carpets. We bring the showroom to you. Or you can book a personal consultation at our fabulous new showroom in Moortown, Dramiskin. Call 87 237 or visit our website at cnccarpets.com to book an appointment. CNC Carpets, for all your carpet and wood flooring needs. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at LMFM.ie Good morning. It's Monday, 12th of September. It's the Michael Reed Show with Alan Cantwell for the next two weeks. On the show this morning, the latest on the planned closure of the emergency department at Our Lady of Lord Hospital in Our Lady's Hospital, I beg your pardon, in Navin. The oil is set to resume after the summer break as speculation intensifies around possible measures in the budget that may help alleviate the cost of living crisis. Fudegwale are told to be on election footing as members are briefed at the party's recent think-in. And Child Poverty Week gets underway today. We'll be speaking to the Children's Rights Alliance. And Social Justice Ireland raise a red flag following the publication of a Department of Finance report relating to our corporation tax take. This and more between now and 11. If you want to contact the show, you can do so by text or WhatsApp on 86 658 Let me just bring you the latest developments in relation to the emergency Department at Our Lady's Hospital in Navan. Further documents have been released to the Michael Reed Show under the Freedom of Information Act after we appealed the decision to our original request for all the emails sent between the HSE and the Department of Health from the 1st of May to the 31st of July this year, and also between the HSE and the Minister for Health relating to the future of the emergency department. Listeners may remember that 22 records were discovered following that initial request, but just one was disclosed to us regarding a response given to LMFM by the Department of Health in July. So it was disclosed to us, but we were already aware of its particular contents. Now, we appealed that decision, and three further documents have now been disclosed to us here at LMFM. A comprehensive 17-page briefing note from Minister Donnelly on the proposed transition of Navin Hospital to a Model 2 hospital. A letter from Anita Brennan, hospital manager at Our Ladies Hospital in Navin. And finally, a letter from the Minister for Health to the HSE's board chairman, Kieran Devan, dated 30th of June 2022. 
I'm going to come to those particular documents now. I will read in its entirety the Anita Brennan letter because it is significant. It is quite stark. And then I will give you a... Uh, I suppose, a synopsis of what the Minister for Health had to say in his letter. But first to that letter from uh, Anita Brennan, and it reads, We would like to draw your attention to yet another critical incident that occurred in the emergency department of the hospital. This incident highlights yet again the risks associated with critically ill patients coming to Navin. Navin does not have the critical care services to provide these critically ill patients with the best opportunity of survival. Consequently, this incident resulted in an unnecessary delay in the patient receiving the most appropriate investigation and treatment. Thankfully, this patient stabilised and survived to date in brackets. However, this event is one of a number of critical incidents that have occurred in the emergency department of the hospital in the past six months. The inevitable consequences of these repeated critical incidents is patient deaths. Yours sincerely, Anita Brennan. And that makes for pretty stark reading. We get reaction to this and uh, other aspects of this story in a moment, but I want to come to the letter then that Minister Donnelly wrote to the HSE board chair, Kieran Devan. I'm not going to read that in its entirety because it is quite lengthy, but I will just extrapolate from that the key particular points. So I'll read it as uh, from this particular paragraph. As you are aware, I met with senior clinicians at Our Lady of Lord Hospital Drahad on Thursday 9th of June. Notwithstanding the considerable investment that has already taken place in Drogheda, these clinicians expressed serious concerns about the impact reconfiguration would have at the hospital in terms of additional attendees and the patient safety implications of significantly increased patient experience times for both patients who would previously have attended Navan and those already attending Drogheda. The Minister goes on to say, in that context, I believe we must gain greater clarity on several issues. These include resourcing requirements for Our Lady of Lord and the other impacted hospitals in order to accommodate and additional volume of patients. The ongoing work on emergency department resourcing may provide a framework within which any further resources deemed required could be provided. 24-7 access to the MAU at Navan, that's the Medical Assessment Unit, and ambulance protocols. He goes on to say, I believe that a quick process to review, validate and stress test the reconfiguration planning would be helpful. And finally, while ongoing preparations for reconfiguration and the necessary consultation and engagement may take place in parallel with the validation process, this process will need to be completed before any consideration of a definitive date for the implementation of emergency department changes. They are the critical parts of that letter from the Minister. I want to bring Pather Tobin, Chair of the Save Navan Hospital Campaign and aim to TD for Meath West in to give his reaction to what he's just heard. Um, Deputy, good morning. Thank you for taking your call this morning. Can I first go to that letter and that particular line from Anita Brennan when she states the inevitable consequences of these repeated clinical incidents in patient deaths? That's pretty stark. 
It is dark. And, and first of all, just to congratulate uh, LMFM for chasing up these documents because um, the, the first application for these FOIs um, didn't have these documents included. And it's wrong that these documents were withheld at LMFM or to anybody else uh, seeks them. Um, and it's very clear that there, the HSE have allowed a weakness to develop in Navin A&E over the years. Uh, and the actions of the HSE have led to a situation where critical care services are not in place as they should be in Navin A&E. It doesn't surprise me that the HSE have allowed that to happen. Uh, we know that there are 350 people who each year lose their lives in this state due to the weakness in our A&E services. Uh, we know that we have record waiting times, for example, uh, in A&Es right around the country, which is having a, a severe impact on people's lives. So this is a life and death issue. It's something that we in the Save Navin Hospital campaign have been focusing upon for a long period of time. We have been demanding that the government would uh, d- develop and uh, put in place the critical care services, the acute surgical services, into Navin Hospital so it would be as safe as any other mm. A&E. And they have refused to do that. And one really interesting point from the documents that you've, you, you've received there is the, you know, the, the campaign has been asking that the current review would at least do a feasibility study into the proper services being at the A&E in Navin. And we were told by Minister Damien English that they would be. And it's very clear uh, from the documents that you have released that the minister is simply looking for a review over the reconfiguration of these, the services okay. uh, in, in, the, in, in, the, in the region. So there is no space in the current review for to find out the cost-benefit of analysis of putting in the critical care services in Navinani, which is absolutely shocking. Okay, so bring that to its natural conclusion. It therefore is a fait accompli that the emergency department at the hospital is going to close. And one can infer that from what the minister was saying in his letter when he says... Uh, I'll just read the paragraph. While ongoing preparations for a reconfiguration and the necessary consultation and engagement may take place in parallel with the validation process, this process will need to be completed before any consideration of a definitive date for the implementation of emergency department changes. Therein lies his decision, more or less, unless I'm reading it completely wrongly. Well, I, I think you're reading it correctly in that that is the desire of the minister and that is the, the desire of the Department of Health and the HSE for sure. But it's not a fait accompli. And the reason why I say this is we have had probably one of the biggest battles uh, ever in the history of the HSE occur in Navin County Meath. Navin A&E was one of 10 A&Es that were marked for closure by the HICWA hit list uh, 10 years ago. And Navinani is the last A&E of that list in survival at the moment. And thank God it's in survival, because just in the last week, we've had the Matter Hospital say to patients, don't come near to us because we're full. We've had uh, Mullingar Hospital say, don't come near to us because we're full. In recent times, we've had Cavan Hospital say the same things. Uh, we know that Tala Hospital has 24-hour waiting list at the moment. Last Monday, for example, Alan, 95 patients attended Navinani. And we know that more than half of those will be forced to attend Drahada if Na- Navin A&E closes. So what the HSE is missing from this whole equation is the fact 
that Drogheda does not have the capacity to deal with the, with, uh, the level of uh, demands that's coming from me at the moment. OK, and that's recognition on the part of the Minister that he decides that something needs to be done with this resource other hospitals that can take up the slack that the likes of Navin cannot do and is therefore putting patients at risk. What is wrong with putting the resources and the finances into Drogheda, Dublin or wherever to have a better outcome for patients, which they are not getting in Navin. Alan, the logical conclusion would be that you would carry out a feasibility study of putting the resources into Navin. How much would it cost to put the necessary resources in, in Navin for better outcome for patients? And you would do a feasibility study over the cost into Drogheda. And then you would measure the two and say, well, actually... This is the cost in both scenarios. To deliver safe healthcare, we can do it in Navin for X amount. Let's proceed with Navin. But the problem is the HSC are not even doing the empirical study, the, the research necessary to find out what it would cost to do it in Navin. And that's, that's the killer here is because they have ruled out a future for Navin without even doing the research. Well, well that's my very point, that the horse has bolted at this stage. The whole notion of carrying out some sort of feasibility study has long since, uh, uh, long since finished. We are now at a point where we, or they, have decided that this is the course of action that they're going to undertake, well, and I, it's a question I, I, of... I don't agree that the horse has bolted, and i tell you why. Because Stephen Donnelly is the fourth Minister for Health who has said that this is going to happen while the Save Navin Hospital campaign has existed. Uh, People power stands for a lot still in this country. We have collected 15,164 petitions from the people of Meath that support the existence of Navin A&E strengthened uh, and safer. We brought between 7,000 and 10,000 people in the march last July. Last October, 10,000 people came onto the streets. The level of anger, the level of determination by the people of Meath in terms of keeping this, the most important piece of health infrastructure that we have in this county, is absolutely massive. And we're not making it up. 23 hospital consultants in Drada, in an emergency action themselves, wrote letters to the minister just in the last number of months saying that if they closed Navinani, it would be a disaster. It would be dangerous for public health. So our argument is on the basis of public health, and that's why we, we will have this Friday at one o'clock um, in, in Kells, a significant demonstration, a people power demonstration, again, to show the government and the HSE we're simply not accepting you closing our A&E. Well, I, I, I think in fairness now to, to the Minister and the Department, they're setting up a medical assessment unit, which must be welcomed in the eventuality of an emergency department going, and an assessment can be made at that particular point to decide where or if patients need to be transferred for further treatment. It's not as if they're abandoning. Well, for, Alan, the, the MAU is a GP-referred MAU. So that means if you or I, you know, are, are very sick or if we have a serious accident, we have to get a GP to see us first, to refer us to the MAU. Now, most people know that GPs in, in, in Meath are as rare as hen's teeth. There's actually only 75 GPs in the whole of County Meath for a population of 220,000 people. And if most people were to ring their GP office today, they will be lucky to get an appointment in the next seven days. Even in an emergency situation, they're unlikely to get in before the end of today if they were to ring right now for, for a meeting. So 
the idea that we, we, we can actually go through a GP to get to an MAU is, is basically impossible for most people. And, and this is really important as well. Many new people have moved, moved to County Meath who simply don't have a GP in the county. So all of those people, the people who don't have a GP, the people who can't get an appointment for a GP, they'll all have to go straight to A&E. And okay. they will go straight to Drogheda A&E. And the 12-hour wait times will become 18-hour wait times over there. And people will suffer significantly from ill health as a result. And there will be deaths if it is the case that people can't gain access in a timely fashion uh, to A&E in Drogheda. Okay, very, but Pala, I just, I'm running out of time on this, but I want to expand it out a little bit. And I don't know if you had an opportunity to see yesterday in the Sunday Business Post under an FOI, the Business Post got eyes on the resignation letter from Paul Reid, the DG of the HSC. And it says, primary drivers of his resignation were his wanting to spend more time with his family and it being the right time for a change in leadership of the HSC. There's more to it than that, but just to comment on that piece, do you think that's a smokescreen to cover up why he really went? Yeah, I've no doubt that uh, Navin A&E played a big element in the resignation uh, of uh, Paul Reid. I've no doubt about it. But what I can't understand is, you know, he was frustrated that he didn't, have the ability to close Navinini when he wanted to last June. He wasn't resigning because there's 1.3 million people in hospital waiting lists in this country. He wasn't resigning because we have record waiting times in A&E in this country, or that we have a crisis in cervical check or in mental health. It is absolutely incredible that the resignation came because he wanted to close capacity in A&E in a capacity crisis. And that's what we have. We have a major capacity crisis right now heading into the winter, where COVID hasn't gone, where we're told there's going to be a new wave, wave of COVID. And the, the, the Paul Reid cites, you know, in passing, in part, in his resignation letter, that his ability to close Navinani was, was a contributing factor. Well, he cites frustrations over limitations he felt were being yeah. put on the HSE and his ability to drive improvements in, sure. the, in the health service. But one, I suppose, but, can infer that he's talking about Navin there. Yeah. Can, can I just make the point as well? The, the, the saving grace for Navinani, the reason that Navinani is functioning and helping patients today is because the people of Mead can't be beat. The people of Mead are not going to take the, the, the closure of the A&E lying down. And I would really encourage people to come next Friday, this Friday, uh, the 16th of September at 1 p.m. outside of the, um, the, the, the primary health care centre on the Navin Road in Kells. And we're going to march to the HSE offices on Bective Street in Kells at one o'clock. And we need to have as many people there as possible. This is, you know, if the government see that the people of Meath have given up, if our heads are down, if we think it's already over, well, then they will act on that. But if they are faced with a strong uh, people-powered response to this, we have a chance of keeping this A&E uh, past okay. December getting investment into it and making it one of the safest in the country. Right, let me just put this final point to you, Pader, and I'll just go back to the letter that the Minister wrote and that last line there. This process will need to be completed before any consideration of a definitive date for the implementation of the emergency department changes. He's not buying time here. He wants this to happen pretty quickly. He's very clear in his own mind that it is happening. It's a question of when. And when he talked about that review, he talked about a matter of weeks and not months. He's not finding 
a way to kick this can down the road so we won't have to deal with it in the term of this particular administration or when he is Minister of Health. It is happening, and that's the reality. Well, well in Burnham, it's not happening at the moment. The HSE are gung-ho to seek to achieve it, and, and, and the Minister himself is also in favour of it happening. Uh, but right now, it's not happening. The, HS, the A&E is functioning in Navan. And I believe it will do if the people of Mead stand up for it. Now, I think it's really important what you've just said there. He has said he is stopping the closure of the A&E until the review is over. The review is meant to work out what capacity is needed in Drogheda and to, you know, uh, to understand what would make it safe for that uh, reconfiguration to happen. He doesn't say that the Navan A&E won't close until that resource is in place. So he's actually written in, in a letter to me to say that reconfiguration can happen in tandem with resources being put in place. So we're going to have this deja vu situation that we're told resources will be put in place, but closure will happen. And then we'll wake up like Ennis, like Roscommon, like Nina, we'll find out that the resources were never put in place and the closure has happened. Limerick University Hospital is like a war zone. HICWA themselves have, it, have written reports just in the last two months indicating that that Limerick University Hospital is struggling because of the closure of Ennis and Nina. And you know, we can't afford to wake up in, in three or four months' time literally being another Ennis or another Nina and okay. have a dysfunctional hospital not able to deal with the population increase. Very good. In we must leave it there. Uh, Pather being chair of the Save and Ash Navan Hospital campaign and into TD for West Midwest. Thank you for joining us this morning. If you want to contact us, 86 658 Michael Reed on LMFM. Welcome back to the programme. If you want to contact us, you can text or WhatsApp on 086 1800 658. Budget 2023 must address Ireland's poor performance on delivering basic infrastructure. Long-term investment in basic or social infrastructure should be part of the government's response to improve living standards and reduce the cost of living in Budget 2023. That's according to Dr Sean Healy, CEO of Social Justice Ireland. Government must also plan for a scenario where the current rise in the cost of living persists, contributing to a reduction in demand as consumer spending falls. Joining us this morning is CEO, Father Sean Healy. Sean, thank you for joining us this morning. You and many other organisations like yours is engaging in a dance with the Department of Finance, trying to get that extra few million out of them ahead of Budget 2023. But the reality is, whilst we all want to see some form of infrastructural development, we have to consider where we are financially coming out of covid cost of living crisis and who knows what else is coming down the line that's absolutely true alan and it's in the in that consideration that we would be saying very strongly that we need to make investment in infrastructure a priority if you look at the kinds of things that have been bothering us and bothering ireland uh, for quite some time uh, long before covid even uh, like you we had a shortage of social housing we have a problem with public transport. Uh, we have a broadband uh, struggle, you know, to try and roll out broadband across Ireland, uh, and so on. You, you, you can write every your listeners and yourself can can make a list. Uh, you've heard this so often. The interesting thing is because we haven't got those things in place. Uh, we are struggling at, in all sorts of contexts, despite the fact that we're a wealthy country. Now, just to put this in context, well over 10 years ago, uh, when uh, 
PAs after after the bailout, uh, just at the end of that, and when we were starting off again. I, I remember we in Social Justice Ireland produced a briefing document on infrastructure, and it ranked all the countries in the 28 countries that there were at the time in the European Union, and Ireland was the lowest proportion of any country that of uh, putting the lowest proportion of its of its income in our resources into infrastructure. That wasn't really what worried me. That worried me a bit. But what really worried me was that if we double that level of investment, we'd still be the lowest in Europe. Now, the, the problem is we do not take infrastructure seriously in Ireland. And the problem with that is uh, we wind up ranked lower than, like we're, we're ranked 41st out of the 63 countries in the in the recent competitive, world competitiveness rank, rankings. Now, we've always be tried, we sort of prided ourselves that in competitiveness we'd be, we're up there in the top five or seven in the country, in the world. But here we are in, in, uh, on the issue of infrastructure. We're 41st of 63. The problem is, until such time as we produce a proper housing system, and, and not at all that, but improve the, the, the provision of social housing, until we get the broadband rollout, until we have public transport across Ireland, in a proper system. We are not going to be able to deal with climate, we're not going to be able to deal with poverty, we're not going to be able to deal with homelessness, and so on and so on, in okay, a but, comprehensive but Sean, way, other than in, in sort of band-aid way. Yeah. We have to get something, we have to make it an approach that sees it really as core, that we do the social housing, okay. we do the public transport, and so on. Okay, Sean, but the focus seems to be very much on social housing, not just from yourselves, but from mm-hmm. other organisations who want to see this particular problem resolved, they're mm-hmm. working on it, if to believe the government but infrastructure is more than just social housing it's roads it's transportation it's schools it's every other public service and you know something we're not doing too bad if you saw where we came from 25 or 30 years ago Sean well, we are and we're not. It depends on how you measure it. Like, given the resources we've had, we should be far better, further down the road. Uh, yes, we've done much better on roads. For example, we've built uh, some very good motorways, and we did actually deliver on some of those kinds of targets that we had. But the, the ones I'm highlighting, uh, the social housing, we highlight because, and, and we put it as number one, because if you don't have a roof over your head, you're in really bad trouble. And Ireland has a homeless crisis now with 10,500 uh, people in homeless in July of this year. Um, like we, we should not have a homeless crisis in Ireland. There shouldn't be a problem with homelessness, nor should there be a problem with the cost of housing. We have a situation uh, that basically because there's a lack of provision of a sufficient uh, number of uh, housing units, the price of housing goes through the roof. Not alone that, rent goes through the the cost of the rental goes through the roof as well. The way to deal with that is very straightforward. Uh, we, we have to take a look at uh, the social housing provision. And it, like while the government is saying there's only 59,000 people on the waiting list and that's what they're focusing on, in actual fact, they're excluding all sorts of groups out of that, people who are on the housing assistance payment and on the residential, uh, the, the RISE program and a whole lot of other groups. Now, the real number, when you put them all together, is we need about 133,000 additional social housing units. On, if we had those in place, that would take 133,000 households away from the rented 
private rented sector where they are at the moment, and government wouldn't have to support them anymore. Okay. But that would mean that there was 133,000 units available, and that has a knock-on effect. It brings down the price because the supply has grown, and not alone that, it brings by down the price. Okay, Sean, I, I, the overall, sorry, brings down the overall price of housing as well. Okay, I want to talk about financing infrastructural projects, and it does require a huge, uh, huge number. Money. We're talking billions here. And I want to have that conversation in the context of where our corporate tax take comes from and refer to a particular report from the Department of Finance which claimed that the Exchequer could collect somewhere in the region of 20 billion in corporate taxes this year compares to 15 billion last year. Mm -hmm. Now the report also notes that last year 53% of corporate tax was paid by just 10 large multinational right, yeah. corporations, FDIs, foreign direct investment in other words, yep. and we have a huge reliance on that. That's a problem, Sean. I see it as a challenge rather than as a problem. Um, uh, We're too dependent at the moment on corporate tax. So what we're saying basically is be careful. And how how to be careful is very simple. Don't use that money to sort of create any expenditure down the line. Spend it on one-off items. And infrastructure is the place to spend it. If you, like, once you build a house, it's built. You don't have to build it again. Once you put in the rail line or once you put in the, the the tunnel or whatever you're doing in terms of trying to improve uh, uh, transportation, Uh, once you put it in, it's in. You don't have to put it in again, okay? So only use the additional money, the sort of windfall that we're getting in that space at the moment. Only use it in the context of that kind of expenditure. Don't start putting it into pay rises or anything else uh, because they will recur. Uh, and we mightn't have the same money coming from from uh, the, the, the the transnationals, the FDI. Now, what the, 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 if we go if we take that approach to it, we still have a huge amount of money available because the economy is doing very well overall. Mm. Uh, we still have plenty of money available to deal with the recurring issues like the public sector pay rise, like the the various other things, including increases in pensions and increases in social welfare payments. And we can well well do that even if we wanted to do some tax cuts but if we were I wouldn't be recommending tax cuts at at, at a higher level I'd be recommending them for at the the lowest level for people who are on the who are kind of on the margin making tax credits refundable and things like that Sean I'm I'm out of time on this but I just want to put this final question to you and it ultimately comes down to politics and politicians with foresight politicians with vision I'm not specifically Uh, pointing my finger at any political party or individual, but is it in your view that we don't have those individuals who have the foresight and vision? I think we have, we're challenged for the last, why, for the last decade and and more and more, we've been challenged uh, with because we don't have people who see the importance of basic infrastructure. They may they talk a good story, but they don't put the money into it. And the result is we don't have those social houses, we don't have that public transport, and we, we don't have, for example, uh, the storage capacity for gas, which we should have. Okay. Uh, things, that, things that are absolutely essential. And as a result of that, then, we have problems and housing and transport and all the rest of it, and the cost of living hits us harder than it needs to do. We need to be always preparing to, for the long haul. We need always to be investing for the future. Otherwise, we're going to have very, very serious problems despite 
despite the terrific uh, way that the economy has been growing and so on. Okay, Sean Healy, Social Justice Ireland, thank you so much for joining us this morning. Michael Reed on LMFM. Welcome back to the programme. The Children's Rights Alliance is launching Ireland's first end child poverty week today. It will consist of five days of events, activities and discussions on child poverty across five thematic areas. It comes following the publication of a new child poverty monitor that will document, analyse and report on child poverty in Ireland, which was published in July. The monitor will track government progress on reducing the number of children trapped in poverty, showcase best practice, solutions and spot like key areas of concern. Joining us this morning is Julia Hearn, Legal Policy and Services Director with Children's Rights Alliance. Julia, thank you for joining us this morning. Firstly, can I ask you to give me a definition of what child poverty in Ireland is today? Good morning, Alan. Um, so when we're looking at child poverty in Ireland, we're looking across these key indicators that have been developed that tell us that if children don't have certain things, they are in three different measures of poverty. They're either at risk of poverty, inconsistent poverty, or in extreme poverty. And at the moment in Ireland, there's 13 point, 13, just over 13% of children who are at risk of poverty. So what that means is that they are going out without some of the daily basics. So this includes things like, you know, not being able to afford a new coat, not being able to have uh, one, not being able to have a certain number of meals with meat or fish in them a week and other indicators that exist. But the reality of it is, is that children living in poverty, we know that them and their families are really struggling and they're being pushed more towards the breadline in the current cost of living crisis. And like what this looks like for families on the ground it's you know struggling to pay a bill when it comes in maybe not being able to pay it at all having to go down to the St Vincent de Paul to try and get money to cover anything that comes up that isn't planned you know for example a washing machine mm-hmm. breaking and even for some parents it's themselves going without food so that they can put food on the table okay. for children Julie can I just look at that 13% and perhaps try and peel back some of the layers there that 13% is it possible to extrapolate from that figure What percentage of those particular children may be in dysfunctional families where families are, I don't know, they may have an addiction problem, they may have mental health issues, and what percentages of those particular children come from what we consider to be a normal family background that has an income but just cannot meet the requirements of their children? So unfortunately the data that we get from that that data set called SILK isn't great at bringing it down into those kind of you know, different groups and different types of families. But what we do know and that what we have seen from our members in the Children's Rights Alliance, we've over 140 members, that there are more families who are working, who have an income coming in, who are struggling than ever. And we know that this is due to things like the energy crisis, the rising cost in food. I mean, I would, you know, milk has risen by 20% in the last couple of weeks, last couple of months. So, you know, basic costs are rising, wages are not rising, and families are struggling to meet, to make ends meet. So the families that are struggling obviously require subvention in some shape or form, whether it be from uh, Vincent de Paul or whomever. Are the structures and organisations in place to meet the demands at the moment? I mean, we'd hear from our members, and particularly St. Vincent de Paul, we've heard in the media a lot in the last couple of weeks, how much, how many calls they're getting from families and how the back-to-school costs have really exasperated what they've been finding all the last couple of months, that families just can't make ends meet. And it's been one of those, you know, unforeseen, unplanned costs that can push families over the edge. I mean, really what we do know is that child poverty is multifaceted in nature and it can impact all aspects of a child's life. So really what you need to see in place is a number of structures in place, not just being able 
able to go down to the St. Vincent de Paul, but actually looking at all the different areas such as, you know, early years as breaking the cycle of disadvantage early for children and young people, ensuring that all children and young people can access early years education and care, providing school meals in school is key in terms of breaking the cycle of poverty for children and young people, particularly hot school meals, because we know that some children, this is the only hot school meal that they get in the day. So when you look, I suppose, at having the structures in place, there are some things that are there, but there is more that needs to be done. And really what we're trying to focus on in End Child Poverty Week is looking at five different thematic areas that will work out the solutions that need to be developed to have turned the tide of child poverty within Ireland and it's looking at those short-term immediate measures such as increasing in basic increases in the social welfare allowance but it's also looking at those longer-term measures like working across multiple budgets to ensure that we can have hot school meals for every child in the country. I find it extraordinary in Ireland in 2022 that we're having a conversation about children who are leaving their homes, perhaps not having had breakfast going into school and there's a requirement or an obligation on the part of the schools to provide those meals. Why is that and and why is it so difficult for someone like me to understand that, particularly when we're in a country, and Sean Healy, before you came on, was talking about a country that is a relatively wealthy country. Why is that persisting today? I mean, the reasons why it's persisting are quite complex. And we know that when it comes to, you know, children going without food, we know that what happens is, is that parents often have to prioritise when, when something comes in like a bill. Well, there's, a, there's no priority that will trump, you know, food on the table for a child in all fairness. Well, it, well, you know, it could be the, could be the case that maybe they're having to try give something to every child and the child isn't getting enough. And maybe it's a case of trying to decide between keeping the lights on and giving the child enough food in the morning. But sometimes parents just do not have the ability to pay for everything that they need. And what we do know is that providing hot school meals, providing meals in school is one of the key ways to ensure that all children have access to healthy, nutritious food. We know that some families can actually be in crisis as you mentioned earlier, there can be addiction and mental health issues and parents just might not have the ability to produce food on the table every morning for various reasons that are going on within the home. And we know that for those children, providing school meals is also non-stigmatising. And it's worth saying that we're one of the few countries in Europe that don't have a universal school meals programme. They've been fighting it in the north of Ireland for a very long time and we are far behind on that. Now, we have made a lot of strides towards it and the government have taken a lot of action. So most recently, they would have introduced hot school meals for all DESH schools, okay. so it's all schools in disadvantaged areas. But what we need to see is this built upon so every child can access a school meal. Very good, Julie. We must leave it there. That is uh, Julia Hearn, Legal Policy and Services Director with the Children's Rights Alliance. Thank you for joining us. Michael, Michael Reed on, on LMFM. If you want to text us this morning, we're on 086-1800-658. The doll returns this week after the summer break. Its focus will remain on the cost of living crisis, the housing crisis and hospital waiting lists. The government will spend the first number of weeks dealing with the energy crisis as speculation intensifies around a package of measures aimed at helping households get through the winter. As inflation continues, its meteoric rise, the list of those requiring help is growing longer and longer. For more of this, we're joined by our political correspondent, Sean Defoe, this morning. Sean, good morning. Thanks for joining us. Let's talk a little bit about a budget like no other budget. That's what we've been told. What do you anticipate will come out of this? And is it your assessment that we will see a tranche of credits, as it were, to try and help us through the energy crisis of the winter? 
Morian, thanks for having me. Yeah, I think so. It is going to be kind of a, an thorough project because alongside this 6.7 billion euro package uh, that we have, which is quite a bit bigger than next year, last year rather 6.5 percent, there's going to be a separate budget pot, if you like, that could be up to as much as two billion euro entirely aimed at one-off measures. Um, that are going to be designed to tackle the cost of living and you're going to see probably a lot this week in particular but into next week as well whereby ministers are making pitches for that particular pot and asking Pascal Donoghue and, and Michael McGrath to spend the bumper tax revenues that we have uh, been taking in so far this year sort of 5-6 billion ahead of where uh, they thought they would be now the problem with spending that money of course it's not guaranteed to happen every year we've been hearing warnings about this for years corporation tax in particular has been absolutely booming they've taken in 3 billion euro more than they thought they would um, up to the start of September in corporation tax but the corporation tax scene is changing obviously around the world and it's not a reliable one so you have to factor in that they are going to be spending that they will spend this year but can't mm-hmm guarantee they'll spend in years to come. And so that's where you're going to see things like the electricity credit. We've already heard that there's going to be one probably in the autumn and then another one in the spring as well in the region of 200 to 250 euro per household. Once again, these kind of one-off double payments to things like um, children's allowance as well, for example, perhaps another double payment like the Christmas bonus across all social welfare uh, limits. And those are going to be the kind of things you're going to see as sort of uh, once-off, these one-off targeted measures. And then alongside that, uh, perhaps looking at maybe capping um, uh, capping the profits of energy companies, essentially a windfall tax and reinvesting that in. Sinn Féin obviously is calling for a cap on prices to return prices to where they were in 2021. But, but, but that's, that's, that's not physically a goer though, is it? Because I mean, we can't just do that willy-nilly because we're part of the EU and we cannot just decide that we want to either introduce a windfall tax or put a cap on it. Sure we can't. Uh, well, certainly not the, the cap. I don't think that's going to be a particular runner. And of course, the problem with putting a cap in, and particularly if you say, all right, we're going to guarantee you your bills are going to be no higher than they were in 2011, is that nobody knows where the energy market is going to go, but the suspicion is it's only going one way and it's going to be higher. So you are essentially writing a blank check in that if you guarantee, right, everyone is just going to pay what they did in 2021, yet the price of electricity, the price, the wholesale price of gas continues to go up and up, and the bill continues to go up and up without any end. The windfall tax could potentially be a runner, and it is something that's being examined at EU level, but of yeah. course it has to be done quite specifically and quite targeted and how much of a benefit it would be in the long term it's hard to say. Now there's no doubt that there's a lot of kite flying and that is the case around every particular budget before it's actually published, but the actual um, information that is being drip fed to us, it's aimed I suppose at building confidence amongst the electorate uh, as we head into the winter are they succeeding in doing that do you think Sean? I don't think so, no. Um, I don't think there's a huge amount of people who are very confident that things are going to be better for them this winter than they were last winter. Everyone knows that they're going to take a hit and you, you can see it in everybody you talk to, even talk to members of the family. They're already, I mean, every conversation I've had with people about how they're saving energy uh, relatives who are only boiling the kettle once a day now and are putting it into a thermos instead of having to boil it four or five, six times just to try and, and trim around the edges of what are huge and massive electricity bills. And we haven't really seen the winter bills come in yet because it's only starting to turn cold as well as the last few days have been a sort of winter demagogue life but anyway um, we're going to see those come in uh, over the winter and I don't think people are confident that this budget is going to change their lives because it isn't and in fairness to the government it's not like they have been particularly stingy either in spending there's been more than 2 billion euro in spending this calendar year alone there is going to be when you take it in total probably a 9 billion euro budget package to cover uh, everything including the cost of living which is way ahead of anything that we've seen before outside of the, the pandemic year so it's 
not like there is a, a lack of money going in, but it is simply not going to go far enough. So I think the real onus that's going to be on the government over the next few weeks is making sure the people who will feel this most, the people who are on lower incomes, the people who are maybe on pensions, the people who can't afford or to you know scrimp and save elsewhere to pay for the bills, are the ones who are looked after, and that those maybe who have a bit more okay. of a cushion because of their their own circumstances can uh, can get by themselves. Let's talk about business because the business lobby, as you know, is a very strong lobby in this country, and they're already asking for support, something akin to what they received during uh, COVID. Will they get those? Will we see a situation where businesses will be able to ride out the winter and the huge bills that they are already paying? Yeah, that's the one area where I think we haven't heard a huge amount from government as to what they are actually going to do and where they are going to provide those supports. I don't think that the, the, the mindset of government is really in, in where it was for the pandemic in terms of supporting businesses. That's, look, we got them through there and after that it, it's not quite sink or swim, but the help that they are going to get is going to be limited compared to the help that's going to be funneled towards the, the personal uh, consumer and the, the, the actual uh, people rather than businesses. So that seems to be the sense. There will be some areas maybe that they could benefit in if you look at the to the tourism sector, perhaps uh, keeping the, the, the back cuts and restoring some of those cuts that were there in the past. That's the sort of area that's being looked at. But in terms of wholesale uh, support for businesses, we haven't heard a huge amount yet. OK, let's just look at, I suppose, the broad political picture of what's going to unfold over the coming months. We're going to see a change of, of Taoiseach, which is going to happen um, in, in a couple of months' time. Will that be a pretty much smooth transition? Will it deflect from the real issues that are going on, do you think? Or what will it mean for Michal Martin? I mean, uh, the, the spotlight is on him in terms of his leadership and the future of him being at the helm at Fianna Fáil. And where does it leave Leo Varadkar as well? It's going to be fascinating. It's going to be a really fascinating few months because we're heading into such uncharted waters politically to be it the budget that we just talked about, be it the likes of Brexit, what a new Prime Minister and indeed a new King now in the UK is going to mean, how the political currents might change there. And then also, as you say, this unprecedented changeover of government. We literally have no blueprint because it's never happened. Uh, that w- willingly uh, the position of Taoiseach has changed midway through an election cycle. And so Fianna Fáil today are obviously meeting Monagar for their, their party thinking. Uh, but a little bit less pressure on Michal Martin than there was earlier on in the year when it comes to his leadership. No one has really stepped forward to to put the knife in his back yet and to say, well, I want to be the leader. There is a general sense that he will transition out of the role of Fianna Fáil leader at some point, but the sense is fading that that's going to happen in December. Instead, it looks like he's going to take over his Tónister, which means he's going to have to take over ministry and to displace someone else, and we can maybe talk about that in a minute, and that then maybe sometime after that there will be a bit of a push. For Leo Varadkar, it seems fairly certain he is going to take over now. There were questions around whether that would happen because of the Guard investigation into him after that returned a decision to have no charges it's fairly clear he is going to become T-shirt again and what he wants to do and how, how he is going to put, to put his uh, stamp on it is going to be particularly interesting because we see Fianna Fáil, or Fianna Gael rather uh, at their lowest level in the, in the polls for about 20 years he, really, really low uh, polling for them despite strong performances during the pandemic. That's all sort of receded into the background. Whether or not he decides to shuffle out some of his key team, a lot of talk about Pascal Donoghue. Is he going to be kept in the in the finance brief? The deal was that Michael McGrath would swap in and that uh, Pascal Donoghue would swap into public expenditure. Now there's pushback in that from Fine Gael. So I think there is definitely this real opportunity for tension within the coalition. Uh, so far we haven't seen exactly where it's going to bubble over but it, it's quite a politically difficult handover to manage. Can I ask you just maybe to expand a little bit on the polls because if we look at the polls they are saying the one thing, screaming the one thing Sinn Féin are up there, they're staying there, they're going nowhere. Fine Gael are in big trouble here. Do you see a point where Fine Gael will be able to claw back some of the losses that they've experienced and they've been substantial losses in terms of polls. 
it's going to be really difficult for them. I mean, they have been in power now for 12 years. By the time if this government goes to, to term, it will be nearly 15 years in, in power for Fine That's difficult for any party to deal with. You can see it with the Tories in the UK, but any party across the world will tell you 15 years in power does make it harder to, to remain popular because every single decision or everything that people are unhappy with is landed at their door. And some of them, like health and housing, for example, uh, very fairly. Others, they would, they would consider unfairly. So it's going to be a very difficult challenge for Leo Varadkar. He is now polling below their sort of historically low election results of 2020 where they I think only comparable with 2002 wiped out under Michael Noonan and now they're they're in around 18% consistently below 20% where you have Sinn Féin polling anywhere between 32 and 35 consistently over the last 10 to 15 polls. So it's, it's, it's more than just a flash in the pan. It's a fairly consistent trend for Sinn Féin just two years out of a general election. I think for Fine Gael, what they may well try to do is to go back to the base of the party, go back to those people who would have consistently voted for them for a long time, saying, look, we are the party of the middle class. We're going to put money back in your pocket over the next few years, despite everything that's going on. We're going to make changes to tax to make sure that the middle classes are, are better off. And that's probably what their pitch is going to be for the next two years to try and ensure up that uh, maybe traditional Fine Gael vote to uh, put in an exercise of damage limitation, I guess. As you say, I mean, that put more tax in your pocket. I think that's a busted flush as far as Fine Gael are concerned, because you remember the famous words from Leo Varadkar, they will look after the man who gets up early in the morning to work. Well, as one of those and as one you are, I'm certainly not feeling that little bit of extra money in my pocket from Fine Gael. No, and the one that will always be thrown back, of course, as well, is the USC, the temporary tax, the emergency tax, the one we were all told it'll, it'll come in for a while to get us through the emergency. Well, that emergency is well and truly gone, and the USC is going nowhere, and there is no realistic way of replacing the €4 billion euro a year that it brings in. So it would be interesting to see, uh, I think, in the context of this budget politically, whether Leo Varadkar can get this idea of a 30% income tax rate over the line. It doesn't look as though it has the buy-in from Fianna Fáil and the Greens, certainly for this budget. It's something that he'll want to put in over the next... Uh, a few years, maybe some other changes and targeted reductions in USE as well, but that overall tax obviously isn't going anywhere. What Fine Gael would say is that they have been looking at things like workers' rights, like mandatory uh, or entitlement to, to sick leave and a number of other bills that Leo Varadkar has working on in the Department of Enterprise, but I think it's very easy to say that when, as you say, a lot of people aren't feeling it to go down. Just finally, uh, Sean, can I ask you a little bit about um, Sinn Féin and how they're going to position themselves as we head towards an election? It could happen sooner rather than later, but everyone's eye is on the next election. It always is. It's theirs to lose in terms of getting a big scalp of seats in the next election. How are they going to position themselves? Are they going to move a little bit more to the centre? Or what is the manifesto going to look like maybe in 12 months' time? Yeah, I think the, you've seen them move a bit towards the centre already with positions like that on the Offences Against the State Act, which is the, the, the law that gives power to the Special Criminal Court, which traditionally, obviously, Sinn Féin was always uh, opposed to. And in the last couple of years, they've started to abstain on and say, look, we think the juryless courts need to be looked at and need to be reformed, but haven't tried to block that particular law. You've seen them sort of tidying up around the edges, for example, the big deletion of old um, press releases off their website as well, and just sort of laying the ground to be a little bit more modern and to try and pull in more voters. And, and I think what you're going to see over the next little while from Sinn Féin and the work that's already underway behind the scenes is they're picking out their constituencies. Where can we get two seats where we had one? How can we guarantee that the big surpluses that the likes of Denise Mitchell and, and David Colnan and others where they got 20, 22,000 votes in the last election can transfer into another seat? Because the real challenge for Sinn Féin, I think it's fairly guaranteed they're going to be the biggest party 
in the next doll, but can they get big enough to form a government or who else are they going to need? Because even 35% doesn't guarantee you a majority. It could see you get somewhere maybe in the region of 60, 70 seats. They're still going to need other people. And the problem for Sinn Féin is that the last election, their surpluses elected a lot of the lefty TDs that they might otherwise be relying on to form a coalition. So if they suddenly turn into Sinn Féin TDs, well and good, you're a much bigger party, but you still haven't got that nexus of a government. So that's going to be the big challenge is to expand that broad appeal. And they're sort of going through or trying to occupy the space that Fianna Fáil used to occupy back in, in the 90s, back in the days of Bertie, where they can kind of appeal to a little bit of everyone and pull in votes from everywhere. You're seeing that where they're extremely popular among younger people, but also people in older demographics are starting to move towards Sinn Féin more and more. So that's their big challenge, is to capitalise on what has been a really successful couple of years and then kick that into a position where they can actually form a majority government somehow. Very good. Sean Defoe, political correspondent, thanks for joining us this morning. Michael Reed on LMFM. Welcome back to the programme, 0861800658, if you want to contact us this morning. Fulgail has been left in no doubt that their energies and focus must now switch to the next general election. Members of the party thinking in Kilkenny were told hospital waiting lists, cost of living and the housing crisis remain top of the electorate's agenda. The party's vote target, according to sources, in the next general election is 32%. Ahead of the think-in, party leader Antonis Salia Varadka launched a scathing attack on Sinn Féin, drawing comparisons between them and far-right government in Hungary, led by Viktor Orban. Joining us this morning is Damien English, Minister of State for Business, Employment and Retail. Minister, thank you for joining us this morning. So what was that message coming out of the think-in? Remain calm in a crisis? Is that where we're at? Uh, thanks for having me on. Yeah, and we had, a, we had a good probably three-day event in Kilkenny uh, involving our, our parliamentary party, our ministers, our TDs, and MEPs, as well as our councillors on Saturday. So we had a good, good long discussion around, first of all, uh, where we're going as a government in the next couple of years, what's important for us as a party as we prepare for this budget, uh, for the people we represent, and, and for the couple of years ahead of remaining in government. So naturally, the focus in government is always going to be focusing around housing, health, energy, security and all that area. The focus on the next budget, uh, which is only two weeks away, was very much focused around dealing with the energy crisis and the cost mm-hmm. of energy for families, individuals and businesses. And so the big ask from all our members was that in the, in the budget negotiations we focus in on that, that we focus in on reducing the cost of living for, for families and individuals and business costs. And, and then up there as well was that we protect and enhance payments for pensioners, carers, people with disabilities, but okay. also to make sure that those who are at work uh, see a, a, a tax package by in, in, this, in this budget, similar to last year, that will reduce the tax they pay. Because we see a lot of people in the private sector and, and many sectors are getting by wage increases over the last couple of years. They can't be left in a situation that they pay over half of that in tax. OK, well, Minister, let, let me ask you a little bit more, perhaps, to focus on the party itself and how much soul-searching was done during the course of that party thinking. You're in trouble if you were to look at the polls. I know every political party would say the only poll that matters is the one on election day, but in reality, you're stuck in a very bad place. You have a lot of work to do as a party. How do you propose to change your fortunes? But by attacking Sinn Féin, it hasn't really worked for you. So two things there, Alan. First of all, look at, as you said, polls come and go. So that didn't focus our attention then, certainly because the poll only came out after this. So most of our work, that thinking, was about our time in government. Uh, and, and and looking after people and delivering for people and the knock-on effect the knock-on effect of that if we do our job well in government if we deliver and if we deliver budgets that help secure this country and get people through a difficult time 
that's how you earn votes. That's how you earn your We get that, Minister, but clearly the public are not saying that about Funogail, and that is reflected in the numbers. Yeah, so there's a couple of issues there. I think it's fair to say we are going through, uh, you know, a difficult time. People are very worried, very concerned uh, over the last few months and where this country is going for the next probably six, seven months in relation to just survival mode, paying the bills, paying the costs. That's how people's minds are focused. And naturally, any being government is going to take the brunt of that. So our job is, like we've done before in many other crises, is steer this country out of that. And that's why we will focus a lot on what we do in government. And that's, if we do our job right, then you generally get rewarded for that. If we don't do our job right and don't deliver, then it's fair to say we might, our votes might reduce. I'm very focused on my job working with the Parliament and party leader around preparing for the next election, you know, which are local elections in, in just over two, two years' time, 2024. Yeah. We have a general election, European election. It's really, really important that while we are in government and very much focused as ministers and as TDs in doing our job, we also have to make sure we, we prepare the party and have the party well organised for any future election. Well, with that in mind then, Minister, is it not opportune for the Tónaiste, when he becomes Taoiseach, to have a look at what is happening around the table? Perhaps do a little bit of a, of a reshuffle? perhaps, you know, freshen things up because you're accused of being stale and failing to deliver on what is required by the electorate. Yeah, I, I don't I don't buy into the accusing to be to be to be uh, sorry the the issue of the stale. The the T shirt the Tarsha now when he becomes T shirt, he will be he'll take charge of government. And he's in charge of cabinet around the table. He doesn't control all the ministers or the choosing of all those ministers and their portfolios because there's three parties in government. But he certainly will take a chance over the next couple of months to look at Fine Gael, ministers who are doing well, who are effective in the roles. And he will make changes, there's no doubt about that, if he feels that there are better people to do the job. Because the key issue for me as Taoiseach, or as party leader, is to always pick the best people to deliver and do the job. So we have to make sure now that the public see us delivering. And it's fair to say, in some areas, the delivery is not quick enough. And housing is one of the biggest ones. Uh, and we can say we've made massive progress and we've quadrupled the budget and we're delivering a lot more houses than there was when we started government uh, back, you know, with, with a housing budget back in 2016 because there was no housing being built then. We now have that 30,000 delivery per year, which is still not enough. And there are many people out there which housing is their number one issue. who are under immense pressure with high rents or can't get a house. And there's a range of supports there now which will assist people to have their, buy their own home. But we have to make sure now that, that cuts through, that that works. And people get their new house, get their new home, that those in rent can see the supply increasing to bring the cost down. That's our focus. And we have to deliver that in government. The work started a number of years ago and we we're making great progress. Not back with COVID, I accept that. But people want more and they expect more. And we have to match that delivery. I've no doubt. That they don't, but minister, in, minister, they don't see that on the ground. I mean, look at the figures, look at the, look at the number of people who are homeless, who are without their own particular home. I mean, it, it has just got to the point now where it's almost become laughable, were it not so serious. Yeah, well, two things there. It's, it's certainly not laughable. I, I totally agree with you. We have to find more homes and build more homes. You and I both know it doesn't happen overnight. We put a lot of the legwork in to make it happen to delivery. But I, I agree with you. The public don't see that delivery. And that's why they're, you know, they're, they're annoyed with the government. And that's why our, our, our ratings are low. I, I, I accept that. What I'm very clearly agreeing with you is we have to improve that. We have to do better on that. And we have to drive on with more delivery. And that means taking the, the, the housing plan as it is and making more changes to deliver faster, 
quicker. People need assistance. And well, I, I'm see, not going to go into all the figures of what's Yeah, of course. Well, you see, here's, here's the problem, Minister, when it comes to housing. You're not dealing with manufacturing widgets. There are so many moving parts to building a house that it's not going to happen overnight. It's going to take, in some instances, years. And that's what we have been witnessing here. So you're not going to get the uplift of seeing the number of houses, you know, increase exponentially over the next two years prior to the next election. So you're not going to win on that. So how are you going to win? How are you going to attack Sinn Féin? Because Sinn Féin are your biggest competitor out there. You are the ones who have experienced the biggest net loss as a result of Sinn Féin. Yeah, so, so two things on that. Um, I, I think we have to continue to, to really force the housing agenda and make the impact there. Uh, and yes, it's probably fair to say you, you won't fix housing fully in, in, in two years or two and a half years before the next election. But I think if people can see that there's progress we made and that genuinely they have a chance and they have hope of having a house at the right price, then they will respond to that. So the two things are on that. You are right to say you can't fix it overnight. That's why the work in housing began at uh, this stage about seven years ago, putting in place those plans, securing the land, securing the money to build the houses, fixing a completely and utter uh, broken construction sector. That's all in place now. So that's why we are now seeing 30,000 houses per year being built. And that will fix housing eventually, but we have to keep doing that every year for a long number of years. That's why we have secured multi-annual funding long-term to, to okay. deliver those houses. Now, to deal with the Sinn Féin piece then, look, it's, it's very hard to deal with a party who, in opposition, can say what they like and claim everything they like, but don't have to deliver anything. I mean, I, I sat down on numerous occasions with Sinn Féin and said, right, show me where are you going to put the houses? How many houses will you build week per week? Where will you make it happen? How will you deal with all the planning complications? They don't have answers on that. They're able to just go in and, and, and keep shouting from the ditch, but they don't actually get down and okay. do the work. That's what we have to do as ministers, but we have to do more of it, and, and no problem with that. Okay, Minister, if I may just uh, have a look at an issue which came up on the programme a little bit earlier on this morning. That was around the latest developments on uh, the emergency department at Navin Hospital and the particular pieces of um, correspondence that were released to us under the Freedom of Information. I don't know if you listened to them uh, but there was one particular letter which was written by Anita Brennan who's hospital manager at Our Lady's Hospital in Navan. I'm not going to read the whole letter to you but the last line I think will pretty much focus the minds of a lot of individuals when she says the inevitable consequences of these repeated clinical incidents in patient deaths yours sincerely. She's basically saying that we're only, it's only a matter of time, if you read between the lines, that somebody is going to die as a result of facilities at the emergency department at Navan not being fit for purpose. What do you say to that? Yeah, and then that letter was signed by Jerry McIntyre as well. And that corresponds with what Jerry McIntyre and many other in the medical profession have been saying to us uh, for a number of months now. And that's, that's their concern. And I've discussed that publicly in this programme as well as the hospital meetings. There are very real and genuine medical concerns in relation to the services. Where that follows on then is how do you address that? And this is the issue I've had for a long number of years with the HSE and with various health ministers. That There are two ways to address this. You put in place the extra resources, personnel and financial in Navan Hospital if you can to address the medical concerns. It's not just money. It's about teams of people, the consultants, the, the subspecialists, all that you need to make Navin as safe as it possibly can to get to you know to 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 give you the, to deal with those medical concerns, the HSE and the medical experts like Jerry McIntyre and many others have told us that the best way to deal with medical concerns 
is to, is to reconfigure the services of Navin and provide some of those services elsewhere. They're saying it will only impact a certain mm. number of people, but I as a local TD, as a local minister, have real concerns around that and I've constantly asked for that to be interrogated and more detailed. And Did that's you? now what's happening. Yeah. So, so, so I'm just going to finish the point. So Stephen Downey's Minister of Health agrees with my concerns and concerns of my colleague, Hal, Hal McIntyre, and other ministers and TDs in the, in the county as well, that we have to have this fully scrutinised to see what's best for the people we represent in Navin and in County Mead for the health service. Not what's best for votes or people on the street like that at all. What's the best for medical reasons? And that's why there's now a review to focus in around to see is it possible to change the services? Is it possible to make them better in Navin? And what do you do to, to, get, to enhance people's chances of survival and getting them better? That's what it's about. But, but, but Minister, Minister the, the prudent thing to do in the early stages of this particular process was to carry out a feasibility study. Did you push for a feasibility study? So I'm Alan. I am years, and you, this this is this didn't start six months ago. Oh, I know that. I'm well aware of it. Yeah, but I just did you push for a feasibility I, of study? Of course I did. I'm now, did the, what was the minister's response to that? So, so the minister's response was in agreement to me. He told the HSE to stop. But he doesn't include a feasibility study, from well, what sorry, I understand. He, he does that. Yeah, no. But I can tell you that it does because I've spoken directly, and I have informed the hospital action group of that as well, and this radio session publicly as well. And if you read the other letters that Stephen Downey put back uh, to the HSE, he very clearly says, and I read to you here, uh, Stephen Donnelly, I am not sure you will agree that the proposed reconfiguration must consider not just the hospital in question, but the healthcare ecosystem for the communities involved. That's all of us, Mead, Loud, Cavamon. I know we all want to avoid a situation or one ED gets reconfigured, but where risk is transferred to another RD or elsewhere yeah. in the health service. So I believe that a quick process to review, to validate, and to stress test the reconfiguration planning would be helpful. And then he went on to say that nothing can happen till he sees that review and those plans stress test. Because he, like me and many others, is just as concerned that you can make changes in Navin, but you're only transferring the risk to something elsewhere. But if you, you look. If if you look, Minister, at the final paragraph in that letter, while ongoing preparations for reconfiguration and the necessary consultation and engagement may take place in parallel with the validation process, this process will need to be completed before any consideration of a definitive date for the implementation of the ED changes. He's more or less saying there that it's going to happen, but we just have have to have our ducks in a row. Well, I'm sorry, Alan, that's not what I'm saying. Well, that's 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 how I I read it. That's fine, and, and that's grand that you, you're reading that piece. But I sat beside him, and so did many others in the doll, where he spoke on the record and has repeatedly said this again and again and again. He's told the, the HSE, no, you're not moving on with these plans, because he has got concerns, because he's listened to us. He's listened to other medical people in the Lewis Hospital and other places as well. Now, I, I'm forced to say here, there are concerns right across the board, and something has to happen, because I want people that I represent to be protected not to be put at risk. So there's no doubt about that. But Stephen Donnelly has said, like other ministers, James Riley, Leo Varadkar and Simon Harris before him, they've said to the HSE, going back now over all my term in government for the last nine, ten years, the answer is no, you can't make those changes yet because you have not proven to us that you are ready to make the changes or that it delivers a better health service. Okay. So you're asking about the feasibility study. This goes back to 2013 and well beyond that. The HSE have a view that this should happen, but they've never proven to me or anybody else that what they're recommending is better. And it has to be better or it can't be accepted because 
There's nothing less than that, to be honest with you, man. Minister, we must leave it there. Thank you so much. Michael Reed on LMFM. Welcome back. 086-1800-658 if you want to contact the programme this morning. More than 70% of people between the ages of 18 and 24 in Ireland are considering moving abroad for a better quality of life. Research carried out by Red Sea on behalf of the National Youth Council of Ireland found many of those surveyed expressed concern about the severe impact the coastal living crisis is having on them. The NYCI, which represents 55 voluntary organisations, has called on the government to support young people in Ireland in the upcoming budget to dissuade them to emigrate. Joining us this morning is Paul Gordon, Director of Policy at the National Youth Council of Ireland. Uh, Paul, good morning. Thanks for joining us. Uh, It's almost a rite of passage, is it not, for people in that age group to leave this country and see the world, work abroad and come back and, you know, dispense their skills amongst their their fellow countrymen in 10 or 15 years' time post their leaving. Good morning, Alan. Thanks very much for having me. Uh, and yes, of course, there are, um, as we've seen, benefits to immigration in the past, and our, our own research has shown a kind of a mixed picture of experiences. Many young people do find it an enriching experience. For some, it's an opportunity to learn new skills and experience of the cultures. But I suppose the survey that we've conducted with Red Sea that's been published today demonstrates the a very significant number of young people who uh, are considering leaving the country. So it's more than seven in ten, as you mentioned. And for the Irish economy and the Irish society, uh, I think it's something that should concern policymakers and those in government in the current um, economic climate. It would mean a smaller workforce at a time of skills shortages in many areas. And that may create significant pressures on areas already experiencing shortages it also means a loss of new ideas and innovation, um, I suppose a loss in investment to the state that has made through education and it can mean a less vibrant culture and society and does represent a social loss in many ways and that's why we're asking government uh, to prevent some of this through a significant investment in young people in Budget 2023. Is it not more that younger people are looking at things differently in terms of the opportunities that are now available to them when it comes to working, whether it's from home, the flexibility allowed when it comes to the workplace, and that they say to themselves, why should I stay in Ireland? I can go and work in the Bahamas, I can go and work in Spain and do exactly the same job, but do that remotely and have a better way of life. Well, that may be part of it, but what we are hearing through this survey is that young people are really concerned about what the future holds for them. So four in five have said that they're fearful for the future in the context of the cost of living. Uh, and much of the personal experience that they share with us reflected that. So many said that they're struggling to save, they're facing uh, high accommodation and rental costs. Some aren't socialising with friends due to the need to ration their money. Uh, and many said that they and their friends are seriously consider- considering moving elsewhere for a better quality of living. So while that may be a small part of the picture, I think this is a, a bigger a bigger challenge uh, with that figure that, that 7 and 10 are actually considering moving abroad and 3 and 4 young people believe that they do have uh, they would have a better quality of life outside of Ireland. Now the net downside to us is what specifically we're talking about talented individuals, well-educated individuals and highly skilled individuals who are no longer available to you know, be employed by the FDIs who uh, rely very much on that youth in this country who are very well trained and educated presumably. Absolutely. It would be a loss of talent to the country. It would also, as I mentioned, be, I suppose, a net loss in terms of the investment that the state makes in terms of education for young people. But also, as as I said, I suppose it leads to a less vibrant society. It leads to less innovation. We have fewer new people bringing new ideas, bringing new learning. Um, And that that really is something that, that, that is concerning and something that should concern 
um, our government and our policymakers, and that's why we're calling for investment across a range of areas in this budget to demonstrate uh, that young people are welcome here, that they have a future here. And we believe there's a, that there's a small window of opportunity for government to prevent a significant number of people leaving the country. So we're calling for investment in uh, reducing education charges, so that would be college contribution fees or apprenticeship charges, uh, a reduction in um, uh, public transport fares for for more young people. There was some positive movement in last year's budget, but we'd like them to go further, as well as increasing the uh, minimum wage for under-20s. It's currently... Uh, lower than those for age 20 and over and some are earning as little as 7.35 a week Uh, so that is really concerning along with those who are currently seeking work under 25 who receive a lower rate of job seekers allowance by 43% less than their peers age 25 and above. Okay, as as a parent uh, of of two particular children who are more or less in that age bracket, one thing that resonates with me when I speak to them about Ireland and the future in Ireland, that there is no sense of optimism when it comes to being in a position to, you know, lay down roots, get their own home, find their own way. There's just no sense that they're able to achieve that at the moment. So they've no choice but to go. And trying to resolve the housing issue, as we discussed with our previous guest, Minister English, it's not going to happen overnight. It's going to take, it's almost generational. No, it won't happen overnight. Uh, and I suppose what you're saying about your, your, your own children is reflective of what we're hearing. Um, there is somewhat of a sense of fear, a little bit of hopelessness. And I think the challenge really is a lot of not just the cost of living crisis, but underni- underlying economic challenges for young people. So many are in, uh, they're far more likely to be in temporary work. Uh, six in 10 are in low wage jobs. Um, and when that's coupled with uh, an accommodation crisis where not only are, are rents at record highs, but also it's very, very challenging to find accommodation, it gives the sense to young people that they may not necessarily be welcome here. So we are calling for government to introduce measures that will uh, demonstrate their support to young people in, in the coming months. But looking further ahead, we would like to see a, a national youth strategy that looks not just at um a dialogue with you young people, but action on on areas that are really affecting them, so we can plan for future generations, be it be it around the future of work, housing, uh, education, or other issues that are so important to young people. Okay, just finally, Paul, I know you're pressed for time on this, but my final question to you um, is this: This we're, we're at more or less a tipping point here that we find ourselves in a position if some sort of action or some sort of policy is not put in place pretty soon, we will see what a considerable number of people leaving? I mean, we're talking about what we witnessed back in those terrible days of the 1980s when we saw the flight of young Irish to America, to Australia and to the UK. Is that what you see happening? It's difficult to say at this point. What we've seen in the CSO figures from April this year is that there was a 10% increase in um, in emigration uh, on 2021 and around the same percent on 2019, which is a good comparator uh, for pre-COVID. So what we are saying is that... Um, is that more young people leaving can be prevented by action in this budget, but also longer term planning around a national youth strategy so that people can, young people can see that there is a future here. And we believe there is a small window for government to pre- prevent this. And that's why we're calling for those measures in the budget um, so that young people aren't overlooked. And we, we believe that they have been 
somewhat ignored in the in the general conversation around inf- inflation so far. So we are asking for serious consideration to be given to tailored measures for young people. Paul Gordon, Director of Policy at Thank the you, National Youth Council. Thanks for joining us. Michael, Michael Reed on, on LMFM. LMFM. Now, a local councillor says there was ample opportunity to prevent an abandoned vessel polluting the River Bourne and Drogheda. Independent councillor Kevin Callan says the he raised the issue several times, but a dredger vessel partially sank below the waterline. The vessel, which has been docked in the centre of the town for nearly a decade now, appears to have poured oil and other substances into the water. The Environmental Protection Agency has since been notified and the water will have to be tested. Councillor Callan joins us uh, this morning. Councillor, good morning. Thanks for joining us. What exactly happened, as you are aware of, in relation to this matter? So, Alan, thank you for the time on the show. Um, This matter has been rumbling on for over a year. Um, The vessel is in the middle of the town. Anybody from Drogheda will know it's quite unsightly, it's quite rusty, and it just doesn't look right where it is. It's very high up in the river in terms of its location, um, in terms of the distance from the port. But over time, I've been asking the port company to take action to have the vessel removed. Two reasons. One, concern for the environment. And secondly, it's an eyesore. It's beside one of our largest hotels. Um, Unfortunately, um, we had some responses over time from the port that they would contact the owner of the vessel. Um, And back in April or May, during the summer, I'd asked the chairperson and the, the chief executive at a council meeting to give us a response where they were at. We were told one would be forthcoming, but it never came. And the other day, unfortunately, the vessel uh, became submerged under the waterline and we had oil pour into the river. It's a massive concern as what we have here is hydrocarbon, which has been emitted into the river. And we had a large swim in it over the weekend. Um, Again, it was highly regrettable that this was allowed to happen. The port have taken action in putting a, a floating barrier around it, but yeah. that's not being successful in, in stopping what's going into the river at the minute. Okay, Kevin, can I just uh, let you know that uh, the Dublin Drogheda Port Company has contacted us. They say they have been in ongoing discussions with representatives of the vessel's owners since last year, requesting the removal of the vessel from the port. A question of ownership of the vessel arose in an administration process which commenced earlier this year. And Drogheda Port Company sought legal advice to ascertain the legal ownership status in administration processes. Now, I'll just go on to the end paragraph. It says, following the unexpected foundering of the vessel this week, DPC activated its pollution response to mitigate any immediate oil or potential oil leakage from the vessel. The vessel owners have indicated to the company that they are proceeding to secure and refloat the vessel and will then put in place with the relevant authorities for its removal from the port. DPC continues to liaise with the environmental section of Louth County Council to ensure there is no pollution to the environment. Now, that's what they had to say as in the Drogheda Port Company, but I'm looking at pictures here mm-hmm. and seeing an oil slick which looks pretty horrendous and mm-hmm. from what I can ascertain from that, the damage has already been done. Damage is done, Alan. It is as simple as that. The photographs which people are sending to me, and I've observed the site again myself early this morning, um, the oil is continuing to spread all across the river upstream, around the vessel and downstream. People have been out taking photographs. They've been reporting it to statutory bodies. People have been up with a drone looking down at the river. You cannot deny that the river is polluted from this vessel. Now, what role, if any, has the EPA been playing in this since this happened almost a decade ago? Because I would imagine that when something like this happens and there's a potential threat to the environment, that the EPA need to be called. Were they called? What input do they have? And what action, if any, do they take, from what you are aware of? 
Yes, so as soon as I was aware of the the vessel submerged, I was in touch with the EPA. I had lengthy discussions with them. They established the tonnage of the vessel, how it would have to be removed, where it would have to be removed to. It would have to go the closest location you can dispose of a vessel like this from here is in Scotland because it's 757 tonnes. It's over the 500-tonne uh, limit in, in the European uh, regulation. Um, the EPA also were in touch with the council around testing for the hydrocarbon, which is a responsibility then of the council. I've been in touch with the environmental section of the council as well. Um, so the state bodies, as well as Minister Ryan, who I raised it when he was in County Dowd last week, I raised it with him in person. All of the other statutory bodies are acting on this. But the bottom line from the EPA to me was that the vessel, the water, where that vessel is tied, is the responsibility of Drogheda Port Company. And obviously it's for the council now, through its environmental section, to take action. But the vessel was in the the area controlled by Drogheda Port Company. And at what, at what point were the EPA able to impart that information to you? Are we talking years ago or is no, that just no, recent? No, on the, on, the, on the day the vessel sank, it, it went to a different department within the EPA because this was now effectively an emergency situation. And I have to say they were extremely prompt in coming back on the day and then also liaising with Loud County Council as well. The Department of the Marine also had to be notified um, because, again, this is an issue to do with... <laughs> Maybe just to to clarify what I'm trying to get at here. The EPA, now we know that this vessel is now below the waterline and it's creating Mm -hmm. a problem, but prior to that we know that the vessel had been there for a very long time and that in itself is a ticking time bomb. It represents a threat Mm -hmm. if it hasn't been removed from there. So what do the EPA say then? Were they just prepared to say, well, it's not really anything for us to see right now because it's not posing a threat at this particular point. No one wanted anything to do with it, presumably. Yes, I understand, Alan, where you're coming from. The EPA's position is that if it's not something that they can prosecute for, it's not something that they can act upon. And it goes back to the environmental section of a local authority. So effectively, it's a maritime issue which goes through Department of Marine, local authority and the port. The whole point of a port company is that it is responsible for the area it has control over. So the EPA's response was, if this had happened out at sea, if somebody had intentionally sank a vessel and there was pollution, that would be something that they could deal with. However, because it was tied up in a port, which was overseen by a port company, it was back to the port company and it was back then to the council to uh, tackle it with the port company itself. So now the EPA, because there has been a spillage, it comes under their jurisdiction. Is that correct in saying that? No, it doesn't? no, 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 it's still, it's still not it's still because it's, it's under maritime. Getcha. Okay. So they're out of the the, the picture, as it were. So it's DPC now who have to do something in order to rectify this situation. Now, yes. And this morning, Alan, the the photographs which have come in over the last few days and myself this morning have all been submitted back into the Environment Section of Lake County Council because the the management plan that you referenced, the port have, have cited there, it's not working. And something else now needs to be done immediately to correct it until the vessel is lifted and is moved. And have you had any indication, apart from the actual physical uh, measures that have been taken to try and corral, as it were, this slick in some shape or form, but have you any indication as to when there will be some concerted action taken to remove the vessel? Because I understand the owners are talking about looking at possibilities of scrapping it. I, I think there's no doubt that the vessel is not in, in working order. That's my first concern, and that's why I think it's going to be quite a large and substantial operation to move it. Um, I have asked the council for the update this morning as to when the port company will be undertaking that action with the owner. 
to to move it from the where it is at the minute. The biggest concern here, Alan, is obviously there's the the visual side of it, but the the Boyne Estuary is an area of conservation and from biodiversity, it's hugely important. And the fact that this is happening every day, and the EPA did mention to me that when oil is on the surface, if you have a continual tide, which we have in Drogheda, it clears it very quickly. But the photographs, which have been seen over the weekend, clearly show that even with the tides washing the material away, there's more and more in the river, which suggests a continual leakage into the river. So how or who should then investigate in terms of trying to understand the uh, how we quantify the actual damage that this is going to cause, not just now, but the, but the implications for future months and years, because it, it has a long-term effect? Well, my view is that the Environment Section of Loud County Council must formally take on dealing with this situation now. Um, we have obviously emergency services who have equipment to deal with such issues like this in conjunction with, let's say, uh, bodies like the Coast Guard to get a correct boom put around this vessel. So uh, to me, the, the safest bet is to have the council step in and to effectively oversee everything from here on out because I just don't have confidence after raising this for over a year, I just don't have confidence that it's going to be done correctly unless we, we see every step of the way. Very good, Councillor Independent Councillor Kevin Callan. Thanks you. Thank you for joining us this morning. Uh, we've more or less come to the end of the show. Before we go, though, I just want to bring you some of the comments which came in in relation to some of the issues we were covering. Uh, the provision of housing. Paddy Duffy says, "How many years have we been listening to houses can't be built overnight?" They just don't want to build homes. That's what Paddy has to say. Matthew texts in to say that he would like to hear what Fianna Fáil's Thomas Byrne has to say on the latest news, re Navin Hospital. Well, I can tell you, Matthew, that um, we have uh, invited Thomas Byrne to come on the show tomorrow, and he will be joining us tomorrow to give us his view in relation to those uh, new documents which were released under Freedom of Information. Back tomorrow, same time. Good morning. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie LMFM podcasts. With CNC Carpets, we bring the showroom to you. Or book a new showroom appointment on 87 When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program. 
the secret to visibly firmer, summer-ready skin is here. Osea's number one best-selling Andaria Algae Body Oil. Clinically proven to instantly improve skin elasticity and transform dull, dry skin to silky, soft, and unbelievably glowing. Rich yet never greasy, Andaria Algae Body Oil is formulated with sustainably sourced seaweed to help replenish the skin's moisture barrier and seven nourishing active botanical oils for results you can see and feel all over. The best part? It's signature scent. A blend of freshly squeezed grapefruit, cypress, and mango mandarin transports you to sun-kissed summer days. This all-natural scent is unforgettable. Everything Osea makes is clean, vegan, cruelty-free, and climate-neutral certified, so you never have to choose between your values and your best skin. Get healthy, glowing skin for summer with clean, vegan skincare from Osea. Get 10% off your first order site-wide with code GLOW at oseamalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A-Malibu.com code GLOW.